911. What's the address of your emergency? I live it. Somebody just knocked on my door and said they killed his sister. Somebody killed his sister that lives above us up here. Okay, is he still on your property? Yeah, yeah, he's staying on the porch. Okay, do you know who he is? I have no idea. He's got blood all over him. Okay, and what is your name, sir? What's that? What is your name? My name is... Okay, this individual's on your front porch. You say that he's he on my front porch. Covered in blood. Yeah, he's got blood all over him. Okay. And he's saying that somebody just killed his sister. Yeah, it's time to get away from him. All right. We've got him on the way over there, okay? If anything was to change, call us back. Safety's okay. sake, don't let him in the house. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. One, two, three. You are listening to season four of the 542 in the Blue. A podcast discussion on law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective sergeant, author and researcher. Today's Shade of Blue Story, episode 4-7, is another look at children killers. Why does this type of crime occur? Can something be done about it? Background music used with permission under common license. This is Victoria, your producer. Thank you, Victoria, for starting us out again. And as Victoria said, welcome to Season 4 of 542 in the Blue, where we have stories about law enforcement, cold cases, old cases and incidents that occurred in the Appalachian Mountain and beyond. And I am your host, Scott Lunsford. What you have just heard before Victoria opened us up was the 911 call that came into the Buncombe County, North Carolina Emergency Dispatch Center on November 11th of 2017. Now that day, deputies arrived at the Brinewood Drive address and thinking that the call was a suspicious person or somebody uninvited on the front deck, arrived around 8.50 p.m., almost 9 o'clock, on a Saturday night. Now, you heard in the call the complainant saying that a male individual covered in blood had knocked on his door and told him somebody had killed his sister. To quote, he's got blood all over him, the caller said. He's on my front porch. As is usually the case when responding to dispatch calls, When the deputies arrived, their information was somewhat spotty and incomplete. They found the man who had called 911 and a 14-year-old young man on the front porch. Getting what information they could, deputies started a search for an injured victim. Responding officers requested backup because the search area was expanding as time went on and they wanted to find the victim to render any aid or help they could and do so as quickly as possible. And the more eyes you have out there, the quicker you might be able to find something. Well, they did find the victim. 18-year-old Kayla Hensley. She was found at the bottom of Brinewood Drive. Her body found near a dumpster with very severe lacerations on her neck and a canvas belt was also found tied around her neck. 
Detectives with the Buncombe County Sheriff's Office, after the victim was located, they ended up staying on the crime scene over 14 hours, if not longer, continuously processing the scene and gathering evidence, doing everything they could to find out who had done this homicide. The investigation determined that Kayla Hensley was killed inside her family's home and then moved to the dumpster area. Now the 14-year-old juvenile who caused the 911 call to be made spoke with detectives. After some intense interviews, he did end up admitting that he had killed his sister. The young man was taken into custody and he was charged with first-degree murder and placed into the custody of the North Carolina Department of Public Safety Juvenile Justice Office. And of course he was placed into secure custody. In other words, he was locked up in what was basically a juvenile jail. And this of course being for the safety of the community and in fact the safety of the juvenile himself. Now the suspect arrested was the younger brother of the victim. A GoFundMe page was later set up at that time to help the family with burial costs and, and other expenses. And over $8,000 was raised to help. Now the defendant, our 14-year-old brother, Cleon Henderson, he ended up being confined for three years by the state of North Carolina. Now this month, September 2020, the young man, now 17 years old, Henderson pled guilty to second-degree murder and the death of his sister in Superior Court. Judge Alan Thornburg sentenced Henderson to 16 to 25 years in the North Carolina Department of Adult Corrections. He was then also given credit for three of those years for his imprisonment since the 2017 killing when he was locked up in a juvenile facility. Now this means there is a possibility of release as in uh, 2033. The question a lot of people have about this case is why did the court case take three years to conclude? Now, as we talked about recently, juvenile statements and confessions are easily challenged in court. Our system of justice is made up to hopefully be fair to victims and defendants. Some will say this is not necessarily the case a lot of the time, but this is our system and we do what we can to be fair to all, or at least we hope there is an attempt to be fair to all. Now, the defendant as I said, was, a, was 14 years old at the time he was interviewed about the crime. A defense-initiated forensic psychiatric evaluation questioned whether Henderson possessed the specific intent to premeditate and deliberate before the murder due to his age, his immaturity, and other mental health diagnostic factors. Now there is also the question, can the defendant in his mental state at his age, can he give consent to a confession 
And is that confession admissible in court and not made under duress? Now, of course, look at these on a case-by-case -case basis. In North Carolina, the charge of first-degree murder requires proof of specific intent to commit the crime. With premeditation and deliberation beyond a reasonable doubt, second-degree murder in North Carolina, which is what he pled to, does not require proof of premeditation and deliberation. Now, in North Carolina, a juvenile convicted of first-degree murder may be released on parole after serving 25 years in prison. That includes part-time in juvenile detention facilities and the rest of the 25 years in adult facilities. Now, in this case, it's important to not forget that the family in this situation lost two children, one to murder the death and the other to prison. I guess we'll see what happens in 2033 when Henderson is released from prison. Will he have rehabilitated? Will he be mentally fit to be out and about? We will see what happens when Henderson is released from prison in 2033. Was he rehabilitated? Is his mental status acceptable for being released in the community? You have to admit, killing your sister at such a young age and then hoping to come to grips with that personally, that has to be a very, very high mountain to climb. Now let's move on in time and location to February of the year 2000. And let's go a little bit northward to Mount Morris, Michigan. Now we're going to look at now the youngest school shooting victim in the United States up until the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in 2012, 12 years later. Yet the shooter the shooter himself still remains the youngest school shooting perpetrator to date at six years old. The killing drew worldwide attention due to the particularly young age of the victim and the perpetrator, both, and once more started the argument of gun control and the safety of our children in schools. Now our victim, Kayla, Renee Rowland, born May 12, 1993, born on my birthday, passed away on February 29th of 2000. She was a six-year-old girl from Mount Morris, Michigan, near Flint, Michigan. She attended a public school along with other six-year-old first graders. The school she attended was Burl Elementary School in Beecher Community School District in Michigan. Now, a six-year-old fellow student at the school whose father at the time was incarcerated for violating his parole, he had actually been originally placed on probation for breaking and entering and uh, drug dealing, and he violated that agreement of his probation, and they ended up locking him up again. This is the father. 
The student was staying with his mother and his eight-year-old brother and another younger brother. The mother ended up being evicted for not being able to pay rent on her $175 a week paycheck and losing a place to stay and a place to live mom put both the six-year-old and the eight-year-old boys with their uncle in his house normally you would think that would be a, a good situation if you had to go that route both boys shared a couch there at their uncle's house to sleep on unfortunately the uncle made his living by operating a crack house now quite often these types of business plans require the operator to not only deal in cash and currency but in stolen property as well and there was frequently quite a bit of stolen property and strange individuals coming in and out of the house and this also included firearms and other weapons coming into the house and home now the six year old was known to have uh, behavioral problems there at school often having to stay after school uh, for cursing using the F word and giving other students then staff the finger he was apparently well known for his use of shooting birds he was also known for various assaults on students at the school and before the shooting he stabbed one girl with a pencil an argument over a pickle resulted in an assault and fight with a fellow student uh, at the lunchroom the six-year-old student had attacked our victim once before Kayla Rowland before and on the day prior to the killing he tried to kiss her and she rebuffed him that morning the boy and his brother also had gotten into a fight with another 10 year old the six-year-old is reported to have told the older boy do you want me to take my gap out and shoot you now at some point apparently Kayla Rowland's um, assailant had located and were found a loaded David's Industries P32 semi-automatic handgun the gun was in a shoebox in his uncle's room and pretty much not secured and just laying out and we find out later that it was common occurrence for that particular weapon to be out in the living areas the day of the shooting at school the student brought the 32 caliber semi-auto pistol along with a knife with him to school now according to court records from a civil court case against the school system and the teachers the shooter had walked to school with his brother telling his brother he had the pistol and according to the lawsuit the pistol was protruding from the boy's pants when he arrived late for that uh, class day in first grade that day during a change of classes the first grade student fatally shot his six-year-old fellow student Kayla Rowland in front of a teacher and 22 other students while they were moving down the hallway from one floor at the school to another in a class changing he is reported as saying to her I don't like you and then shooting her the bullet went through her right arm 
then through a vital artery. The little girl and fellow student was pronounced dead at the hospital while still in cardiac arrest. The six-year-old shooter threw the pistol in a trash can and ran into the bathroom and hid. School, of course, went on lockdown. A teacher found him there and he was taken into custody by police. He and his two siblings were later removed from custody of the mother and the uncle and placed in the custody of a biological aunt. Now we have the question, what do we do with a six-year-old murderer? The legal position being that at that age he would lack the ability to form intent uh, in most United in most of the United States six-year-olds are not liable for crimes they commit. In 1893 the US Supreme Court declared that children under the age of seven cannot be guilty of a felony or punished for any capital offense for within that age child is conclusively presumed incapable of committing a crime. Again, this is 1893 when the Supreme Court made that decision. Now, many state laws follow this same policy. In North Carolina, you can be charged with a crime at six years old, but not a homicide or a felony. So who is responsible? Well, that's a good question. The county district attorney there in Michigan called on the citizens to collectively hug the boy presumably out of pity and sympathy. Uh, when we look at that, do we see our shooter also as a victim? I think so. The boy was not charged with murder because of his age, but there was a trial and the shooter did testify. Now, During this court hearing, after the shooting, the six-year-old shooter showed a district court judge how he had seen another man who sometimes stayed at the house that his uncle, that he shared with his uncle, and was apparently a fellow drug dealer, had showed him how to spin the gun around on his finger and do other actions showing that the young man, the six-year-old, had a familiarity with that weapon. Now what about justice for the victim who was shot? The uncle who owned the 32 pistol, well, he didn't really own it. It was a stolen pistol. The pistol that was used in the shooting was convicted of leaving it in a location where it could be reached by a minor, a shoebox in his bedroom, with easy access by the children who lived there. The gun that killed Kayla, a 32 caliber semi-automatic handgun, was reported to have been stolen from a house in Flint, Michigan just a few months prior to the incident occurring at the school. Follow-up investigation and a search warrant by local police served on the uncle and at the house turned up more firearms and of course a plethora of illegal drugs. The uncle pleaded no contest to involuntary manslaughter and spent two years and five months in prison before he was released and placed on probation. Burl Elementary School closed in 2002 due to uh, a dwindling enrollment and some very stressed finances at the school. 
The school was almost destroyed by a fire that was set on purpose in 2005, an arson case, and was finally demolished in 2009 completely. On the 20th anniversary of the shooting, this year, February 2020, the boy who shot Kayla Rowland was living in Bay City, Michigan. Public court records show he had been convicted of a couple of felonies in connection with second-degree burglary and home invasion and larceny. Those cases occurred in April of 2012. Of course, we shouldn't forget the other victim of this tragedy. Her death certificate describes her occupation as an elementary school student and lists her cause of death at 10.29 a.m. as a gunshot wound to the chest. In a section of the form the medical examiner or the doctor uses describing how the injury occurred, the doctor completing the death certificate simply wrote, shot by a student. Thank you for listening. Victoria and I will be back next Saturday with another Shade of Blue story. Let's see if I can make this next shade of blue a little more pleasant. And remember, in the coming weeks, be safe and be secure. And if you're given the opportunity or you see the opportunity, do something nice for someone. Everything worthwhile tends to start small and grow from that point. If you've got questions, you want to contact me, you can reach me through the contact page of my website, scottlunsfordauthor.com. Or you can check out my books on Amazon.com, listed under R. Scott Lunsford or Scott Lunsford, depending on which books you're looking for. In the meantime, Victoria, go ahead and close us out. And bye, y'all. Two, one. You have just finished listening to the 542 and the Blue Podcast. Your host today, Scott Lunsford retired police detective sergeant, researcher, and the author of the Asheville Cop Mystery Book series, as well as the Young Person series, The Girls from Gift, Girls Investigating Fantastic Things. For more information on this podcast, and Scott's books, please go to 542andtheblue.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com. Scott can be contacted there. This is Victoria, producer and sound engineer. Thank you for listening.